Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. <laughs> and I'm Eric. And today we are reading short and deep The Diary of a Madman by Guy de Montpassant. It's first published in uh, Le Galois in September of 1885 as Un Fou, which is, I guess, a, a madman, but I like to think of it as a crazy, um, as a better <laughs> English translation. And uh, we're reading it in a 1903 translation. Uh, very famous story. When I first read it, I was very impressed by how much it does in such a short space and I read it recently again and I think it still has that power yeah that's good do you want to say anything about Maupassant or do you want to read the story how do you like to begin this Uh, well I'm a big Maupassant fan Um, he is a madman himself in a certain sense (laughs) Um, literally, he was institutionalized. Many of his stories deal with madness. He, um, he was extraordinarily popular. He, I think, did very well during his lifetime just writing, um, as in he could make a living and perhaps more. But um, he's also a tragic figure um, because his madness isolated him. And uh, you can see that isolation in many of his stories. Here, I think he uses that um, uh, as insight into human <laughs> human beings and the, the weird ones among us. Indeed. Indeed. Or some of the weird ones among us. Mm. Uh, yes. So he was 35 when he published this, I think, and 42 when he died. Mm. And Yet he had enough time to come down to us as one of the great masters of the short story form, or of short stories. The form is mm-hmm. very, quite inventive. Shall we begin? Absolutely. The Diary of a Madman. He was dead, the head of a high tribunal, the upright magistrate whose irreproachable life was a proverb in all the courts of France. Advocates, young counselors, judges had saluted, bowing low in token of profound respect, remembering that grand face, pale and thin, illumined by two bright, deep-set eyes. He had passed his life in pursuing crime and in protecting the weak. Swindlers and murderers had no more redoubtable enemy, for he seemed to read in the recesses of their souls their most secret thoughts. He was dead now at the age of 82, honored by the homage and followed by the regrets of a whole people. Soldiers in red breeches had escorted him to the tomb, and men in white cravats had shed on his grave tears that seemed to be real. But listen to the strange paper found by the dismayed notary in the desk where the judge had kept filed the records of great criminals. It was entitled, Why? June 20, 1851. I have just left court. I have condemned Boulogne to death. Now, why did this man kill his five children? 
Frequently, one meets with people to whom killing is a pleasure. Yes, yes, it should be a pleasure. The greatest of all, perhaps, for is not killing most like eating? To make and to destroy? These two words contain the history of the universe, the history of all words, all that is, all. Why is it not intoxicating to kill? June 25th. To think that there is a being who lives, who walks, who runs. A being? What is a being? An animated thing which bears in it the principle of motion and a will ruling that principle. It clings to nothing, this thing. Its feet are independent of the ground. It is a grain of life that moves on the earth and this grain of life coming I know not whence. One can destroy at one's will. Then nothing, nothing more. It perishes. It is finished. June 26. Why then is it a crime to kill? Yes, why? On the contrary, it is the law of nature. Every being has the mission to kill. He kills to live and he lives to kill. The beast kills without ceasing all day, every instant of its existence. Man kills without ceasing to nourish himself. But since in addition he needs to kill for pleasure, he has invented the chase. The child kills the insects he finds, the little birds, all the little animals that come in his way. But this does not suffice for the irresistible need of massacre that is in us. It is not enough to kill beasts. We must kill man, too. Long ago, this need was satisfied by human sacrifice. Now, the necessity of living in society has made murder a crime. We condemn and punish the assassin. But as we cannot live without yielding to this natural and imperious instinct of death, we relieve ourselves from time to time by wars. Then a whole nation slaughters another nation. It is a feast of blood, a feast that maddens armies and intoxicates the civilians, women and children who read by lamplight at night the feverish story of massacre. And do we despise those picked out to accomplish these butcheries of men? No, they are loaded with honors. They are clad in gold and in resplendent stuffs. They wear plumes on their heads and ornaments on their breasts, and they are given crosses, rewards, titles of every kind. They are proud, respected, loved by women, cheered by the crowd, solely because their mission is to shed human blood. They drag through the streets their instruments of death, and the passerby, clad in black, looks on with envy for to kill is the great law put by nature in the heart of existence there is nothing more beautiful and honorable than killing june 30 to kill is the law because nature loves eternal youth she seems to cry in all her unconscious acts quick 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 the more she destroys the more she renews herself July 3. It must be a pleasure, unique and full of zest, to kill. To place before you a living, thinking being, to make therein a little hole, nothing but a little hole, and to see that red liquid flow, which is the blood, which is the life, and then to have before you only a heap of limp flesh, cold, void of thought. August 5. I, who have passed my life in judgment, condemning, killing by words pronounced, killing by the guillotine those who had killed by the knife, 
if I should do as all the assassins whom I have smitten have done, I, I, who would know it? August 10. Who would ever know? Who would ever suspect me, especially if I should choose a being I had no interest in doing away with? August 22. I could resist no longer. I have killed a little creature as an experiment, as a beginning. Jean, my servant, had a goldfinch in a cage hung in the office window. I sent him on an errand, and I took the little bird in my hand, in my hand, where I felt its heartbeat. It was warm. I went up to my room. From time to time, I squeezed it tighter. Its heart beat faster. It was atrocious and delicious. I was nearly choking it, but I could not see the blood. Then I took scissors, short nail scissors, and I cut its throat in three strokes. Quite gently, it opened its bill. It struggled to escape me, but I held it. Oh, I held it. I could have held a mad dog, and I saw the blood trickle. And then I did, as assassins do, real ones. I washed the scissor and washed my hands. I sprinkled water and took the body, the corpse, to the garden to hide it. I buried it under a strawberry plant. It will never be found. Every day, I can eat a strawberry from that plant. How one can enjoy life when one knows how. My servant cried. He thought his bird had flown. How could he suspect me? Ah. August 25, I must kill a man. I must. August 30, it is done. But what a little thing. I had gone for a walk in the forest of Vern. I was thinking of nothing, literally nothing. See, a child on the road, a little child eating a slice of bread and butter. He stops to see me pass and says, Good day, Mr. President. And the thought enters my head, shall I kill him? I answer, you are alone, my boy? Yes, sir. All alone in the wood? Yes, sir. The wish to kill him intoxicated me like wine. I approached him quite softly, persuaded that he was going to run away, and suddenly I seized him by the throat. He held my wrists in his little hands, and his body writhed like a feather on the fire. Then he moved no more. I threw the body in the ditch, then some weeds on top of it. I returned home and dined well. What a little thing it was. In the evening, I was very gay, light, rejuvenated, and passed the evening at the prefect's. They found me witty. But I have not seen blood. I am not tranquil. August 31. The body has been discovered. They are hunting for the assassin. Ah. September 1. Two tramps have been arrested. Proofs are lacking. September 2. The parents have been to see me. They wept. Ah. October 6. Nothing has been discovered. Some strolling vagabond must have done the deed. Ah. If I had seen the blood flow, it seems to me I should be tranquil now. October 10. Yet another. 
I was walking by the river after breakfast, and I saw under a willow a fisherman asleep. It was noon. A spade, as if expressly put there for me, was standing in a potato field nearby. I took it. I returned. I raised it like a club, and with one blow of the edge, I cleft the fisherman's head. Oh, he bled, this one, rose-colored blood. It flowed into the water quite gently, and I went away with a grave step. If I had been seen, ah, I should have made an excellent assassin. October 25. The affair of the fisherman makes a great noise. His nephew, who fished with him, is charged with the murder. October 26. The examining magistrate affirms that the nephew is guilty. Everyone in town believes it. Ah, ah. October 27. The nephew defends himself badly. He had gone to the village to buy bread and cheese, he declares. He swears that his uncle had been killed in his absence. Who would believe him? October 28. The nephew has all but confessed. So much have they made him lose his head. Ah, justice. November 15. There are overwhelming proofs against the nephew. Who was his uncle's heir? I shall preside at the sessions. January 25, 1852. To death, to death, to death. I have had him condemned to death. The advocate general spoke like an angel. Ah, yet another. I shall go to see him executed. March 10. It is done. They guillotined him this morning. He died very well, very well. That gave me pleasure. How fine it is to see a man's head cut off. Now I shall wait. I can wait. It would take such a little thing to let myself be caught. The manuscript contained more pages, but told of no new crime. Alienist physicians to whom the awful story has been submitted declare that there are in the world many unknown madmen as adroit and as terrible as this monstrous lunatic. Um, this story reminds me a lot of um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado in that it's about a murderer who gets away with murder and lives a long life and isn't called to account for it. Um, but I think this has some <laughs> other things going on in it that are pretty critical of the society, whereas I don't think Poe has any interest in that at all. Um, so it has a, a frame, right? Um, somebody is telling us, here is the diary of a madman. Here is what we found among the papers, right? Uh, a file in the judge's desk that is for great criminals. And he put his own diary in there. Um, and at the end, we get that external frame again. The manuscript contained more pages, but not but told of no new crime. So one way of reading that, I thought, was um, he stopped killing people. He stopped doing crime. He just took that insight that he gained from 
killing a couple of people and a bird and uh, use that to better do his job as a judge. Um, but I think that's a very bad reading. And yet, I think that's one of the readings that we're supposed to take away from it. And if we go back to the beginning, um, I want to explain what I mean a little bit. He was dead. He was the head of a high tribunal, the upright magistrate whose irreproachable life was a proverb in all the courts of France. Advocates, young counselors, judges had saluted, bowing in low, bowing low in token of profound respect, remembering the that grand face, pale and thin, illuminated by two bright, deep-set eyes. So everybody looks up to this guy. He's, his name is Justice. <laughs> he had passed his life in pursuing crime <laughs> and in protecting the weak. Swindlers and murderers had no more redoubtable enemy, for he, and this is the part I highlighted, he seemed to read in the recesses of their souls their most secret thoughts. So, one way of reading this is that in doing these horrible crimes, he has become a better pursuer of justice. I think that that's a very, very terrible reading. And yet I think that that's also in there. It's designed to be in there. And that's horrible because it makes the madman uh, of this story far less unique. And then it continues uh, this sort of horrible reading, even before the journal. It says, he was dead now, and that's actually a repeat of what we had at the first line. He was dead now at the age of 82, so he lived a long life, honored by the homage and followed by the regrets of a whole people. And then we get this description of his funeral. Soldiers in red breeches had escorted him to his tomb, and men in white cravats had shed on his grave tears that seemed to be real. He talks about soldiers in his diary and how they are held up as great heroes when their job is to go around killing people, and everybody enjoys finding out the adventures of these soldiers, and they get to wear special red uniforms, and, ooh, this is wonderful. (sighs) Um, his criticism of humanity is savage because he's making a very hard-to-argue-against point. I'm going to read that section where he talks about soldiers. And do we despise those picked out to accomplish these butcheries of men? No! They are loaded with honors. They're clad in gold and resplendent stuffs. They wear plumes on their heads and ornaments on their breasts. And they are given crosses, rewards, titles of every kind, just like our judge. They are proud, respected, loved by women, cheered by the crowd, solely because their mission is to shed human blood. And after he kills a bird and he goes to a little party, um, they think him witty. They think him charming. They give him honor. It's very, very subversive. It seems on the surface to be just about a madman, but then that that final paragraph, alienist physicians, that's what we would now call psychologists or psychiatrists, um, 
alienist physicians to whom the awful story has been submitted declare that there are in the world many unknown madmen as adroit and as terrible as this monstrous lunatic. Everybody's implicated by this. Everybody is in danger of becoming this madman. And yet, it, the the diary itself seems to be uh, something we would utterly reject. He starts off a little odd, and then perhaps a little creepy, and, you know, philosophically... Uh, disgusting. And then he actually starts doing horrible crime. He kills his bird's servant, uh, his servant's bird, and then he he kills a little boy, and then he he kills a, a man and lets the boy be blamed for it. And he has him executed. So, in the end, he doesn't need to kill people by strangling them or hitting them with shovels, he can do it by condemning the innocent to death and having their heads chopped off. So that that line, the manuscript contained more pages but told of no new crime, um, should be read skeptically. Well, the manuscript, I think, told of no new crime, but I think what we can believe is that the record of the magistrate's uh, pronouncements, his sentences, may indeed have been new crimes. Yes, every because, single one the whole could very system. possibly have been him condemning the innocent on purpose. And to, to extend your point about this having a wide social range, uh, since no proofs were given and yet the justice system condemned, it is entirely possible that since the magistrate realizes that no proofs were given and nonetheless condemns someone to death, mm-hmm. that he is committing crimes in the name of the justice system. Mm-hmm. So that if, in fact, uh, those, this happens from time to time and he collaborates with it, he doesn't have to commit a crime on the sly he knows that he is committing a crime mm-hmm. by using the justice system to uh, slake his own thirst for letting blood run, which he can always do by going to see the next guillotining. Mm-hmm. I, I like very much your, your notion that, that much is condemned here. Uh, I'd like to pursue it a bit. When the diarist says that War is invented to indulge our desire for the intoxication of killing, a desire that is hard to uh, to address within the confines of civilization. Um, he is arguing that that's really the reason for war. Mm-hmm. That you know we don't go to war to win territory or for individual power. We go to war, you know, and I think that that's probably wrong. I think that's one of the reasons he's a <laughs> We hope man. he's wrong. <laughs> we do. No, well, I, I have no doubt that he's wrong, and I don't think we're supposed to think that he's right. I think that this having been set in 1851 and 52, but published in 1885 with the intervention of the Franco-Prussian War, mm-hmm. 
in which the French were attacked and defended themselves and lost, I think it's not easy to suppose that a contemporary audience would feel that the French went to war because of their desire for blood. Mm-hmm. I think that they might go to war the next time against the Germans for the desire for blood, but not in 1885. They're looking back at war as something imposed upon them. But that doesn't explain the truth of the admiration that they have for heroes, the the mm-hmm. panoply, the, the plumes, the medals, the display of the armaments. That, that works. So I'd like to make an analogy. Uh, personally, I do not like to fight. I don't like to, to I don't want to punch anybody and I mm-hmm. don't want to be punched. Right. Um, I think a lot of people are like me. <laughs> and yet there is an enormous number of people like that who love to watch football games. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean American football. They love to watch people crashing into each other. And, and the, the fact is that part of the appeal of a dangerous and violent sport is that we can enjoy it vicariously. Mm-hmm. So while I think a contemporary French audience in 1885 would not have said that this was a sane uh, notion about the cause of war, they would have to acknowledge that the enjoyment of war, as long as it happens to be happening anyway, really may reflect the desire to have a vicarious indulgence of the desire to kill. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of little boys have torn the legs off insects mm-hmm. and so on. Right? So you outgrow it, but you know, that was you once. Now, if, in fact, the vicarious enjoyment of the desire to kill truly um, condemns almost everybody. So few of us become assassins, and lots of us don't go to war, even if a war happens to be available. But if most of us can praise the hero, and most of us can get a vicarious enjoyment in what's going on, one of the ways we can answer the question about what the magistrate did in the years between 1852 and 1885, when he's just recently died, um, is, as we've said, he's continued to commit crimes, but using the justice system to do it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing we can say, a supplement to that, not a contradiction of it, is that having written down the story, he can return to his diary and reread those days and re-feel those emotions. In other words, he has reified the existence and he can relive his past vicariously Mm -hmm. by looking at the manuscript. And therefore, the last passage, the manuscript contained more pages, but told of no crime. Ah, It didn't tell, uh, no new crime. It didn't need to because there are many in the world who are unknown madmen, they are as adroit and terrible as this monstrous lunatic, and we get to watch them by reading this story. Mm-hmm. What Maupassant is suggesting is, in addition to all that you and I have just discussed, Jesse, our taste for crime fiction is itself an indulgence of the desire to see blood flow. Mm-hmm. And that puts us on the side of the madmen 
Yep. That's a very brave and risky thing for uh, for the author to do. Mm-hmm. I uh, I want to go back to uh, the very first Montpassant I suggested we do for this podcast. It was way back in episode 17, several years ago. Um, it was called The Wolf, uh, also known as The White Wolf. Um, and it's about a uh, dinner party. Well, it, it's, it starts at a dinner party in which a non-hunting marquee uh, ends up telling the story of his, two of his ancestors, uh, brothers who once hunted a great wolf, perhaps a werewolf. Um, and um, uh, this is, has a similar passage to the one we've read today because they're both about this sort of bloodlust the idea of us all deep down we want to we want to hear about killing and i'm just going to read from the first page of that although uh, all through the long repast we had talked about hardly anything but the slaughter of animals the ladies themselves were interested in tales sanguinary and often unlikely and the orators imitated the attacks and the combats of men against beasts raised their arms romanced in a thundering voice and it then the marquis comes and tells his story about why he never hunts and uh it's a horrible story just horrible um and i believe in this story um, the gently squeezing of the bird and the killing of the boy, that word gently, is also in this other Montpassant. Um, when the brother kills the, the wolf, he squeezes it gently. And then after this horror is back, you know, finished, this brother brings his, the dashed out brained body of his brother back to the castle. And he says, and that is why I never hunt. Um, one lady at the end of the story says, all the same, it is fine to have passions like that. <laughs> it is a very cynical condemnation of humans. And yet, Montpassant has picked his target and it is very accurate. And as you point out, he comes back to it again and again mm -hmm. because he thinks that we continue to live with it. That is, uh, if the subject is deeply enough moving, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.